Friends, let me invite you to take your Bibles now and turn to John chapter 17. Uh, This is going to be week number two of three weeks walking slowly through one of the most remarkable passages in all the Gospels, a passage where we get to see and hear Jesus as he prays to his Father merely hours before he'd be killed. Uh, Last week we talked about this prayer uh, as a kind of stethoscope. Someone used that image for it. I think it's perfect. It's It's a kind of stethoscope Uh, through which we can pick up the heartbeat of Jesus. If you want to get to know somebody, I can't imagine a better way to get to know them than to hear them talking to the one person that they love and trust more than anybody else and to hear them talking to that person in their most vulnerable moment. That's what we have here. And if you really want to know what someone thinks about you, you can't do better than to overhear what they say when you're not around. (laughs) I grew up in the South. There's a lot I love about Southern culture. Uh, I even like some of the stereotypes that we're known for. I'm a fan of the manners. I'm a fan of the warm hospitality and the big smiles and the easy chit-chat, even with total strangers. Not so much a fan of the flip side, though. (laughs) We are known, we Southerners, are known for keeping things sugary sweet on the the outside, aren't we? Shall we say face-to-face? Uh, but holding back what we're really thinking till somebody's back is turned. I'm going to resist the, uh, the, the, the urge to take a, uh, a poll, a show of hands here for how many of you who aren't from the South have, have experienced this stereotype, whether you confirm it or not. Well, Southerners, I mean, let me say this. Other cultures are just as likely to gossip as we Southerners are. I think gossip is just part of living in a fallen world where people just say what they think and don't always think great things about others. But we Southerners, at least stereotypically, what you see is not always what you get. At our most direct, we tend to be passive aggressive. You know, we bury our insults inside compliments. We bury our critical feedback inside as, as grains of truth deep down inside our jokes. And wherever, this, wherever that stereotype holds true, it holds us back in relationships, doesn't it? Make you feel like you don't really know where you stand with somebody and, unless you could overhear them talking about you with somebody else. Now, Jesus didn't struggle with passive aggressiveness. Jesus, Jesus was perfect. He always said exactly what he had on his mind and what he said was always right. Still, there is something uniquely and wonderfully revealing about listening to someone talk about you to someone else. And something deeply encouraging to see how Jesus prays for his friends. I'm convinced that that John records this prayer in John 17 because there are few things so important to your life and your growth and your happiness as a Christian than knowing how Jesus feels about you and what Jesus wants for you. Our text this morning gives you a clear window into both. From from listening as Jesus prays for his friends, you can see, you can hear how Jesus feels about you and what Jesus wants for you. Let me begin by reading the section we're going to consider this morning. I want to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I pick up in chapter 17, verse 6, and read through verse 19. Jesus says to his father, 
I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. Now they know that everything you've given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they're yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now, now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. First point this morning, first thing to see as we watch Jesus pray for his friends is how Jesus feels about his friends. Do you notice as we read these first verses, Jesus doesn't actually ask his father for anything until several verses into the section. It's not until he gets to verse 11 that he actually makes an ask. Up to that point, did you notice what he's talking about? Basically, all through those verses, what he's talking about is who he's praying for. He's telling his father who he's going to be praying for, but not, not just identifying who they are. His emphasis in these verses is on who they are to him. He's showing us how he feels about his friends. And here's what he shows us. Jesus sees his friends as a precious personal gift from his father. That's what you need to know about you if you're a friend of Jesus. Jesus sees his friends as a precious personal gift from his father. Follow the thread with me. Look back at verse six. Jesus says, these are the people whom you gave me out of the world. Then again in verse six, yours they were, you gave them to me. And then jump to verse 9. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world right now. See, he's telling his father who he's talking about, but not just who he's talking about, but who they are to him. I'm praying for those whom you have given me, for they're yours. Verse 9. You hear it? 
Jesus sees his friends as a precious personal gift. One of my most prized possessions is a gift from my grandfather. It's a small diary that dates back to the Civil War. I've told some of you guys about this before, maybe even shown it to you. It's been handed down through our family generation after generation ever since. It's full of a bunch of notes from soldiers that one of our ancestors came across during the war. Some of them have just rich and amazing descriptions of their homes, where they come from, of their experiences in battle, that just a wide range of this exquisite handwriting. It's just incredible. The whole thing is incredible. It's definitely up there near the top of, of, of my list of things I'd grab in a house fire, you know, like just below the kids and like way above the dog is, is this diary. <laughs> Can you see what makes it precious to me? It's this amazing combo between, uh, uh, made up of, uh, of where it comes from and, and what it is. I mean, it starts with where it comes from. Uh, my grandfather matters to me. This man was a huge influence in my life. It's a dear, dear man who was one of the best things about my childhood, no question. And if this was his, and, and not just his, like it mattered to him. It's something he got from his father. And it's something his father got from his father, who got it from his father, who got it from his father. I don't know how far back, a long way back. This thing mattered. It, it, it would have been on near the top of his list of things he would have saved if his house was on fire. He kept it all of his life, protected from the elements in this special wrapping, in a special safe-like compartment. He would only bring it out on special occasions. And you know, like when his history-loving grandson would come and he would open it up and show me the, the writings in his favorite sections, his favorite entries. So, so when I see that diary, I think of him. That gift is caught up into our relationship for me. It's, it, it, it's, it's a symbol and, 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 and even a conduit of that special love that was between us. I, that's what Jesus is saying here about his friends, if you can believe it. That's why he keeps talking about the fact that his friends were his fathers. Did you see how many times he says that? Yours they were, yours they were, yours they were. You gave them to me, you gave them to me. Over and over he says it. it he can't not see his friends through his relationship to his father. That means that Jesus' friends are caught up in the fundamental relationship of all reality. They've now been caught up into the eternal love of the father for the son and the son for the father and the father for the son and the son for the father. When Jesus looks at them, he sees the Father who also loves them and gave to him what he himself loves. The gift matters because of where it comes from. It's personal. But also because of what it is. It's precious. I mean, this diary, I mean, I'm a guy who loves, I've loved history so much for so long. I don't really have an origin story for it, honestly. Sometimes people ask how I got into it and why I'd spend so much of my life studying it professionally back in the day. I just can't explain it. I don't know why. I don't know how. It just, I just love it. And I can't not love it. So for a guy like me to receive a gift like that, I mean, I've never been offered a brand new red Ferrari, but I'll tell you right now, I'll keep the diary. You can have the Ferrari. I want the, I want the diary. It's so fascinating and rich and rare and irreplaceable. It was my own little piece of history. It's precious to me. 
That's how Jesus feels about his friends. They're his. They're irreplaceable and precious. You can see it here, and you can hear that echoed throughout the New Testament. Anytime his disciples pass down to others what they know about how Jesus sees his people. Maybe my favorite example, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, talking about the, Jesus' friends now expanded from this original group of disciples to all people who trust in Jesus. Peter describes them as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. They are precious to him. Now, if you're not a Christian yet, I hope you're tracking with me about how Jesus feels about his friends. And I, I hope if you're tracking with me, the question you're asking next is, how does a person get to be friends with Jesus? I mean, after all, I think it should be really clear to you so far, even from what you've experienced this morning, we Christians believe that you can be his friend. One of our core beliefs is that even though he came and sacrificed his life so that we could be forgiven for our sins, he's actually not dead anymore. He came back to life after three days. He's alive now and he's knowable now. He's adding to his list of friends even now. You can get in on it. How? I mean, the, the answer is that you, you can get in on, this, on it the same way that these disciples did. There's only one way in on it. You have to believe what he said. You have to receive what he's, what he's given. You have to believe that he is who he says that he is. That's the only way to get in on it. I mean, I get that in our world, typically, you're chosen for what you bring to the table, you know? If you're hiring for a job and you've got a big stack of resumes to sift through, you're going to choose the one that stands out from the crowd. You're going to be looking for the one who's the most skilled or the most experienced or the most well-trained or the one who's been to all the right schools. If you're picking a kickball team during recess, you're going to be looking for the kid who can get to first fastest or the one who's proven to have the strongest leg or one who's got uncanny ball tracking skills and is good at catching the ball up in the air. In our world, you choose the best. But when the father chose a people for his son, when the father chose a people out of the world where that's how things work, for himself, and the new kingdom that he reigns over. He wasn't picking an all-star team. Jesus is the only star here. We've seen plenty by this point in our study of these, of these chapters to know that these disciples, they were not all-stars. This was a motley crew if ever there was one. They're just now a couple of hours away from pretending like they don't know the man. And that's who's precious to him. Why, how did they get in on this group? Jesus does not leave us to wonder. It's, it's all through the verses we've already read. Let's follow that thread. How did they get to be precious to him? Because in, when, when he manifested the name to them, verse 6, they kept the word. They believed it. They trusted it, verse 6. Because, verse 7, now they know everything that's been given to me is from you. I told them that and they believed now, verse 8, I have, I have given them the words that you gave me and they received them. They've come to know in truth that I came from you. They've believed that you sent me. That's verse 8. 
So what do these guys bring to the table? How'd they get to be so precious to Jesus? Clearly, these guys are the best teachers available, right? Uh, no, not true. Surely, these guys must be well-connected. I mean, if you're going to start to build a new movement, you want to start with movers and shakers, people who've got contacts, you know, people who are magnetic, that, that others will just be drawn to. That's got to be who the... Nope, wrong again. These must be the disciplined ones, right? The guys who stay in their lane, follow the rules, always follow through when they say they're going to do something, right? False. Surely it's that these guys just must be quick learners then, right? Super sharp intellectual types who just get it in a hurry efficiently. No. After three years, they still haven't gotten so much of what Jesus taught. There's one thing these guys have in common. And it's the one thing you need to get in on this relationship. These guys have faith. What they have understood they have received. They have thrown themselves on Jesus. And when somebody throws himself on Jesus, he catches them every time. John 1, 12, the introduction to the whole book says, you know what? Not everyone received him when he came. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. All of them. Born, born not of blood, not because of what race they come from, nor of the will of the flesh, not because they got it and had the strong follow through to do everything that was asked of them, nor of the will of man, but of God. The only thing you need to belong to this people, to be among those who are so precious to Jesus, to be one of those given to him by his father is faith. And if this sounds good to you, we'd love the chance to talk to you more after the service about how you could do that and to walk you through what, what that could look like even now, even this morning. I wonder, my Christian brothers and sisters, do you, do you see how wonderful and how, how useful it is for you to know how Jesus feels about you? How many times this week did you have good reason to be discouraged about yourself? Just, just for a moment this morning, would you look at Jesus looking at you? I know it stretches beyond belief almost. And it certainly stretches beyond what we deserve. But Jesus looks at you the way a kid looks at that last present that their mom and dad saved back for the end because it was the big one. Let's take another image that the Bible gives us. Jesus looks at you the way a groom looks at his bride walking down the aisle at the moment he's been waiting for, longing for, preparing for. Jesus loved you enough to die for you back then do you realize that he lives with that same love for you now? He lives to intercede for you with the same love that drove him to die in the first place. Can you see how, how knowing how Jesus feels about you 
It should also affect how you see one another. Not just how you see yourself, but how you see your brothers and sisters sitting around you in the room right now. Friends, just look around real quick. Just look around. Look who's sitting around you. You are sitting surrounded by people who are precious to Jesus. It's no wonder the New Testament talks so much about the kind of relationships we ought to have with each other if we're really with him. It's no wonder that James says, no partiality. Somebody comes in here to worship with you, you don't, you don't take the, the ones that are obviously powerful or rich or well-liked and make sure they sit down in the front where everybody can see them. See who's here? Aren't you glad you get to be in their presence? No, he says, no, no, no. When someone comes in off the street with nothing to offer, you don't shove them to the side where no one can see them. They sit down on the front. You know why? Because here we belong to Jesus. Our status is set by him, only by him. Whoever is precious to Jesus is precious to us. We don't show partiality in a church made up of people precious to Jesus. We don't look at people for what we stand to gain through them, not in a local church. We don't avoid people or overlook somebody that the Father has, has given to the Son. We don't gossip about somebody that the Father has given to the Son. We wouldn't think about belittling or mocking someone the Father has given to the Son. We, we just don't have the right to see one another differently than Jesus sees each one of us. Not if we're with him. And Jesus sees every one of us who belong to him as a precious and personal gift from his Father. That's how Jesus feels about his friends. Now look with me at what Jesus wants for his friends. What Jesus wants for his friends. Jesus makes this shift in verse 11 from, to, from, 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 from talking about who he's talking about to asking his father for what he wants. There's two things he asked the father for in this text. One of them is in verse 11. The other one is in verse 17. Both of them just packed with wonderful implications for what it means to belong to Jesus. Jesus wants two things for his friends. He wants his friends preserved from the world. That's the ask of verse 11. And he wants his friends prepared for the world. That's verse 17. What does Jesus want for his friends? He wants them preserved from the world and prepared for the world. Let's take these one at a time. First, verse 11. Jesus asks his father to preserve his friends. The way he puts it, verse 11 is keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. We're going to talk about this prayer for unity a lot uh, next time. The next section is, is centered on this prayer. For now, what I want to do is focus on this prayer that God would keep them in his name. What is Jesus asking for there? What's the ask? I think we have to understand what he means by your name, and what he means by keep them. So let me break it down. What he means by your name. That's a really common expression throughout the Bible. 
Jesus uses it several times, uh, in, including here in our text. And, and what that, that phrase means is what God is known for. His name is, is his reputation. His name is what he's known to be like. It's similar, really, to the way we use that phrase, to what, what we mean when we say somebody's really making a name for themselves. What we mean is that they're now known for something. They've, they've got a track record. They've got a character or, or, or some sort of competency that's been put on display for everybody to see. That's what it means that they've made a name for themselves. And we've seen that Jesus in game all along has been to show his friends the truth about the Father in a way that was deeper and more rich than anything that could have been seen about him before. The Old Testament is full of references to the name of God. He had shown much about himself, but Jesus came to show something new about his name. And now he's praying that they'll be kept in it. Look at verse six. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me. Look at verses seven and eight. It has the same thing in mind. I have given them the words that you gave me and they received them. It's through these words that his father sent him to teach that he's pulled back the curtain and shown them things about the father that they couldn't have known otherwise. They had gotten it. They didn't get it perfectly. They didn't understand completely. They certainly don't understand as much as they'll understand in a few hours after Jesus has gone through the cross and showed them, showed them that. But for now, they have received his words, which is to say, they took in what I offered them about your name. And now Jesus is saying, Father, please keep them in your name. So what does he mean to keep them? Well, up to this point, it's been Jesus' responsibility to keep them in his name that he revealed to them. He's been here to guard them from the world that doesn't want this word or recognize this name and doesn't have a place for those who do. Look at verse 12. Jesus says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. I kept them attached to, believing in, receiving what I told them about you. I guarded them, he says. But now, verse 13, I'm leaving the world. I'm coming to you and they're staying behind in the world. That's dangerous for them. Because, verse 14, they now have your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world just as I'm not of the world. So, so here they'll be, marooned, without their leader, behind enemy lines, belonging to one Lord, you know, with allegiance to, to one kingdom, but, but living in another kingdom. And Jesus knows that's not going to be easy for them. He knows their, their lives aren't going to be easy. He knows their beliefs aren't going to be popular. He knows sometimes what the world has to offer is actually going to look better to them than what he has given them. And he knows that his friends are going to be living the rest of their lives in the world. So he wants them preserved. That's why he asks his father, keep them in your name. Preserve their faith in what I've shown them. Keep their confidence steady in what you've done for them. Keep their hope protected, a hope in what you've promised them. Keep them in your name. He's asking his father to help his friends believe even when it's tough. That's what he wants for you too. He wants your faith preserved if you're his friend. And he knows what you're up against. He knows that Christians from the very beginning have lived in a world full of other options with plenty of reasons to doubt what we've been told about God. 
Friends, that, that, those, those threats come at us from every angle. Sometimes we doubt his goodness because things are hard in our lives and we can't imagine that the Father himself loves us if we're suffering. Sometimes we doubt his word because we don't want to obey it because the allure of sin just seems so much more powerful than what he's told us is good and right and true. It would be better for us in a way if it weren't trustworthy. Sometimes, sometimes the payoff of what we could have in the world just seems too sweet. You know, the prospect of making a name for ourselves here or of wealth and what it can buy us or, or, or just the freedom to make the most of life on our terms. Sometimes that can cause us to doubt whether an allegiance to him can compare. Lasting faith in a world of other options, it is always a miracle. I wonder if you ever struggle to believe that, that your faith will last over time. It's such a common struggle to worry if your faith is real. And it can be so scary and isolating. So I, maybe the first thing I'll say, if you, if you struggle with that, if you're struggling with that even now, I want you to be open and honest about that struggle here in our church. Here, you look around, this room is full of people who will support you in that struggle. People, of, people who, who will be your allies. People who have been there and understand what it feels like and who can help you to get through it. You're not going to find a group of judges here who are just going to wonder why your faith isn't as strong as theirs or as strong as it ought to be. You will find people who want to help. And today would be a wonderful day to bring them in on that struggle if that's where you are this morning. But what I want to say now simply to you is that if you're worried, your faith may not last. The Bible is full of encouragements to you for why you can trust him to preserve it. But none of them are more precious than the one we see right here. You can be confident your faith will last to the end because the Son asked the Father to preserve you. The Son has asked his Father to guard his precious, vulnerable people who are too weak to guard themselves. And this Father never says no to this Son. We also don't have to wonder what he'll use to answer his son's prayer. He's told us that. Jesus has been keeping his friends in God's name by giving them God's words over and over and over. He says, I gave them the words that you sent me here to give them. His method for preserving his friends was to talk to them over and over, day in, day out, about his father and about what he had come to do for them. It was his word that preserved them. And he's already told us earlier in this, in this final discussion with his friends that he's going to send a helper when he's gone. And his helper's job is going to be to remind them of what he's already taught them and to teach them in all things. The Spirit's job will be to take the word Jesus gave to them and drive it in so that their faith in that word holds on even when Jesus himself is not here to guard them anymore. This right here, God's word, through God's spirit is what God uses to protect the faith of his people. God uses his word backed by the power of his spirit 
to say yes to the prayer of his son. You are part of that work. This is why the word is so central to everything we do as a church. We've been reading it, singing it, praying it already all, all morning together, haven't we? And before we met for worship here, you know what was going on an hour before that? God's word was being taught all over this building. There were adult classes down the hall. Upstairs, there were kids' classes and all sorts of ages. God's word was at the center of all of it. You know why? It's not because of the hot takes we find there. It's because God has made it clear he plans to use it to keep us in faith over the long haul. This Wednesday, groups of Edgefield folk will meet all over the city in small groups. You know what they'll be doing? They'll open up the book of James and they'll talk about a few verses of it because we trust that God will use that time, even just a little short hour-long conversation about James, to keep our faith preserved in a world of other options. And you know that's what happens too when you text a friend who's hurting a promise from the word when they're down when they're struggling to believe and you send them a Bible verse, you're not trying to slap a verse on that like a Band-Aid as if that makes it all go away. That is a caricature. That's not what you're doing. What you're doing is trusting, okay, I cannot fix this. But God has told me that he has given us his word as a tool for his spirit to get his people to heaven. I'm going to see if he follows through. I trust he will. I'm going to send you his word because his spirit backs it by his power, a power I don't have to help you when you're hurting. Friends, all over the life of our church, this preserving work is going on as we share his word back and forth and back and forth and back and forth through all of our relationships. That's what they're for. Jesus' prayer for his friends being answered. And there's one more thing that Jesus asked his father to do for his friends. One more prayer that we can make our own. What does Jesus want for his friends? Well, he wants his friends prepared for the world, not just preserved from it, but prepared for it. This comes out in verse 17. Sanctify them in truth, Jesus asked. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. What's he asking for? I believe what he's asking his father to do is to prepare his friends for their mission in the world through his word. He's asking his father, please, father, through your word, prepare them for their mission. Let me show you where this comes from. To sanctify somebody in the way Jesus is using this word here is to set them apart or to prepare them for a specific task. This is a word being used in the way it would have been used for a priest before he would go into the temple to represent Israel back in the day. He would have to be, first of all, prepared to do that task. There were a set of rituals that he had to go through that consecrated him or sanctified him for the task that he had to fulfill. It's what Jesus means in verse 19 when he says that he's about to consecrate himself. He's going to sanctify himself to prepare himself for what he's going to go now and do for for his friends. Now he's asking the father to do that for his friends for their mission in the world. You can see, I think you can really clearly see what he has in mind if you back up a couple verses. 
Back up with me to verse 15. Jesus makes it really clear in verse 15. Father, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. I don't want them to, to, to come with me yet. Not where I'm going. They're, they're being left behind on purpose. But verse 16, he knows they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. So I'm asking you, leave them right where they are, but they won't belong here anymore. So why leave them in a world they don't belong to? Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. I wonder, do you, do you hear that echo of John 3, 16? God so loved the world that he sent his only son on rescue mission. Now, God so loves the world, even still, that he sends his people, that he sends you, if you're a Christian, into the world just as he once sent Jesus. Not to do what Jesus did, only Jesus can do that but to send the news of what Jesus did so that all can hear and benefit from it. If Jesus' only goal were to keep his friends preserved, he would have asked the Father to give him a compound. He would have asked for something really remote but well-supplied, surrounded by a big, tall stone wall, wouldn't he? That's not what he asked for. He wants them in the world, just not of it. So he didn't ask for a transport out of here or a compound to hunker down in here. Instead, he asked his father to prepare them to be sent. The word is what sets off Jesus' friends from the world. And the word is what Jesus' friends have to offer to the world. For now, what sets Jesus' friends off is their posture towards what God has said, that they think it's true. That's who he's already said he's talking about here, those who received his words and said yes to them. The line between the world and Jesus' people isn't where they live. It's not what they look like. It's not what kind of music they prefer or food or drink they enjoy. If you're just looking at a, you know, a crowd full of people, you won't be able to tell who belongs in the world and who doesn't. The line between the world and Jesus' people is how they feel about, how they respond to the word that Jesus came to offer. And now his people who have said yes to his word, he sends out with that same word so that other people who are in the world have the same chance to say yes. Friends, you live in the world now. How are you engaging it? And where does God's word fit in? There are two big, deep ditches you could fall into on either side here. You could end up too isolated from the world to fulfill this mission Jesus gives to all of his friends. He wants his friends in the world. That's where they're meant to be. The world isn't something to avoid in that way, but to engage. Do you know you could spend hours studying the word for your own benefit and still not get it at all if you're not looking for others to share it with? 
You could be awesome at Bible trivia and still have very little grasp on what it's all for. Are you looking for others to share it with? If you're not, if maybe even you're convicted even now, seeing how important this is to Jesus, who used some of his last words with his father before he died to pray for you as you're sent out in his name. It, it could be you're experiencing that conviction. The next thing you might do is just think about who lives around you or who you see regularly. Make a list of the friends that don't know Jesus and ask a friend in our church to pray for you to make an opportunity to talk to them about it. Be specific about who it is and be specific about who you ask to ask you and follow up with you about that opportunity. Don't be too isolated from the world. You can't do what Jesus is calling his friends to do. But oh, friends, you, you can't be too cozy with the world either. It's really clear that we are in the world sent there on purpose, but not of it. And, and this is dangerous to us because there's so much good in the world. The world is full of image bearers who reflect God's creativity and beauty even when they reject his authority and lordship in their life. But be careful you don't spend so much time looking on the things you can affirm in those that you don't share Jesus with rather than looking for things they're missing, things they're longing for or lies they're believing that you can meet them, where you can meet them with the, the message of Christ. Do you ever find yourself, as you engage the content that comes at you from the world, do you find yourself lifting that up in the light of the word and evaluating it? The word is given to you to sanctify you as you live in the world, to set you apart and prepare you to engage it well. It's meant to be how you see everything, yourself and everyone around you. Are you using it in that way? Jesus wants for his friends, for us, to have the same love for the world that God has. That means wanting the world, those who walk in darkness, to see the light that has shined in our hearts. It means wanting everyone to see what we have seen in his name. Loving the world like God loves the world is not wanting what the world wants. It's not wishing we could be shaped by all the same intuitions about what's good, about what's rewarding, that we could have everything that's offered there. That's not the right kind of love for the world. But wanting the world to have what you have in Christ, bingo! That's the kind of love that sent Jesus to the world in the first place. That's the kind of love Jesus wants to see reflected in the lives of his friends the world is full of people who are no different than we were, needing exactly the same hope and peace that we've found, who are no less reachable than any one of us by the same word of truth that broke through to our hearts. Jesus wants us sharing that word all around. Let's pray for his help to obey him. Will you join me in that now? Father, we do pray for the strength to obey we pray for conviction that these words are true and useful and life-giving to those who will have no other hope anywhere else. And we pray that you would help us to obey even what we've heard this morning and to even now be planning to represent Jesus in the people, toward the people that you've put around us. And we pray that our church would work together with joy 
and purpose and follow through to do this with one another together wherever you give us opportunity. We pray that this word we've just heard would stir us up just specifically to that work. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.